Holy and gracious God, you call us by name this morning. You restore our souls. You lead us in the way of righteousness. Loving God, you pursue our hearts. You ask us to follow you. May we do so through your grace. Like a shepherd tending the flock, you tend to our needs. We ask you to be present with those who struggle, who suffer, are in pain or sorrow. Guide those who are lost or filled with worry and fear. Protect those who are in harm's way. Heal those who are sick. Mend those who are broken as only your love can. God of peace, watch over those who lead us in various governments and in leadership roles. Fill our leaders with wisdom, patience, insight, and mercy. Help them to lead with kindness and strength. God of love, fill our hearts with the knowledge of you that we can turn from the distractions of life and be more like you. May we be agents of your compassion, offering kindness to all whom we encounter. God of all blessings, we thank you for all the gifts of life, for your Son, our Savior, our great Good Shepherd, the one who stands at the gate of all life's challenges and joys, calls out to us in love, and names us beloved children. Father, we pray for in-town church. We ask you to guide us and strengthen us by your Spirit as we seek your kingdom. We lift up our community groups. We pray that you will knit us closely together, that you will raise up new groups. We lift up our forming discipleship groups. We pray that, that those will deepen our walk with you. We lift up community prayer as we intercede for each other. We lift up our children's ministry and all the teachers and mentors who volunteer. And we lift up service to our community. God, we pray that you will be involved as we serve the homeless and refugees. God, we believe that you have called us to unity. Help us not to isolate ourselves. God, we believe that you have called us to live together as one body. Forgive us for the times we have created division. God, we believe that you have asked us to accept and to seek to understand others that you have called. So let us have intentional, loving discussions. God, we believe that you have called us to be one, even as you are one. And we pray all this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Spirit. Amen. This is our New Testament reading this morning from 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 5 to 17. If anyone has caused grief, he has not so much grieved me as he has grieved all of you to some extent, not to put it too severely. The punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. 
I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Another reason I wrote you was to see if you would stand the test and be obedient in everything. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what I have forgiven, if there was anything to forgive, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake, in order that Satan might not outwit us, for we are not unaware of his schemes. Now, when I went to Troas to preach the gospel of Christ and found that the Lord had opened a door for me, I still had no peace of mind because I did not find my brother Titus there. So I said goodbye to them and went on to Macedonia. But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death, and to the other, an aroma that brings life. And who is equal to such a task? Unlike so many, we do not peddle the word of God for profit. On the contrary, in Christ, we speak before God with sincerity as those sent from God. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Ellen. That was beautiful. Have you guys noticed how great our readers are? Everyone that volunteers to do this does such a good job, and I know it, it takes a lot of um, courage to get up here and uh, read things sometimes, but thank you for everyone that does that and volunteers to pray and be a part of what's going on. Um, liturgy is the work of the people, and we appreciate that. So it's great to be back in uh, the pulpit. This morning, after a number of weeks off, and uh, we're going to continue our study of the second letter uh, to Corinth. And this morning, we're going to look at the passage that Ellen read and talk about the sacrifice of Jesus. And if you're new here, we've got a lot of things that are going on that I'm excited about this year, a lot of things that are just starting or are restarting, and I'd love to tell you about it. So if you have a few moments after uh, the service, I'd love to say hello and, and tell you a little bit more about what's going on here at InTown. Um, as we encounter God's Word, let's pray for our hearts and our minds to receive. Dear God, we pray just that, that we would be open to your word and open to your instruction. And as we contemplate what is a fairly complex and difficult passage, I pray, Spirit, that you would be here with us in our midst, instructing us and leading me as I speak. We pray that your church and everyone here would be better for having read this and having heard it, having listened, and that you would cause us to grow more deeply in love with you and in love with your gospel and passionate about the work that you're doing around the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So I think it's a pretty common experience that when you rehear a song that was important to you during a significant time of life, when you rehear it, you're just drawn right back there again. And you can imagine where you were when you first heard that song, who you were in love with, what you were studying in school and so forth, it just comes right back and it's vivid. And smell 
can do the very same thing. If you smell the way an old book smells and it reminds you of being in the library in college, the rain can do that. Uh, Different things like just cut grass and you think about, oh, the summer. And these smells get into your nostrils and into your brain and it captures something about your memory and about where you were when you smelled these different things before. I remember my best friend's house uh, growing up, uh, he lived just a couple of doors down, and his house had a, a very distinctive smell. It wasn't bad necessarily, but it was very memorable. And even when I went back 15 years later, I was like, yep, there's that smell. It was exactly as I imagined it. And maybe this is just weird. Maybe my nose is more like a dog's than just in its physical proportions. But almost every house has a very peculiar, very particular smell. I don't know what mine smells like. It may smell flowery, it may smell musty, it may smell doggy. I don't know. If it smells bad, you can let me know. Actually, don't do that. Don't, don't tell me. I'm happy not knowing what my house smells like. But the Bible talks about smells a lot, if you think about it. Throughout the Old Testament, you hear and read about the smells that are pleasing to God. The idea that sacrifice and burnt offering is pleasing to God's nostrils, that he smells something that makes him come alive and makes him excited and makes him pleased. And here Paul says that every Christian has a very distinct smell, that they give off an aroma, that because of their union with Christ, that they smell like him. Now, this is a little weird. We're going to explain what that means here in just a moment. It will make a little bit more sense. But Christians have, are meant to have, a very distinct smell that is both attractive to those who are being saved and also somewhat repellent. And that's a difficult idea to get across and to contemplate. Now, as a reminder, these letters to Corinth, particularly this one, is an incredibly personal letter for Paul. He's opening up his heart to the Corinthian church, and he refers in the first few verses that we didn't read to this letter that he wrote in the between first and second. So if we had that letter, we would be looking at three Corinthians rather than two Corinthians. But there's this lost letter, and he refers to it as a very sorrowful letter, that it was very difficult for him to write. And in fact, the ones that we have, first and second, you see so much of Paul's pathos and his passion for Corinth, but also his sadness over these broken relationships. And we think that there's been some kind of disagreement between Paul and the Corinthians over how to deal with a a sinning person in the church. And if you remember 1 Corinthians, we dealt with that in chapter 5, that there was this very uh, flagrant type of behavior in the church that Paul was trying to help the Corinthians to address. And it could be that person in chapter 5 that he's referring to now, but most scholars don't think so. And besides, there were enough scandals to go around. He could have just picked one. But whatever the circumstances, we get this very incredible and vivid picture of how a church is to deal with someone who is struggling with a particular sin, a sin that is not just everyday types of things, but something that is really disrupting the community, something that is so flagrant and against confession, that person's confession, that it must be dealt with. It's scandalous. And what he says is that two things have to be going on, and they have to be held in tension. 
that the church is to be a place where people are held accountable to their own confession, that there are high standards to Christian conduct, to what it means to be a Christian in the world, that it's not just something that we believe, but we actually live out, and that is very important. And the church is supposed to be a place that helps people and enables people and holds people accountable to that confession, while at the same time, it's to be a place that is exercising radical forgiveness and comfort, as Richard spoke on the first chapter a few weeks ago. We see this in verse 6, the punishment inflicted on him, that is the sinning brother, by the majority is sufficient. It's run its course, it's accomplished its goal. Now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Or more literally, I love this, decide in favor of love. That's cool, isn't it? Now that you have dealt with this pattern of destructive behavior, decide in favor of love for him so that you may make sure that he is not overwhelmed by sorrow, that you're going to offer him comfort and forgiveness. Well, we see a couple of things here. One is that Paul believes that the community life is bound up together, that we are in this together, and that what happens in your life is important to my life and vice versa. And we cannot differentiate between those. We can't separate them. And what happens to one member affects everyone. And if one is sorrowful, then it's the duty of the community to address that, to comfort them directly. And we see, secondly, how seriously Paul considers the role of the community to deal with persistent patterns of sin in the midst of the church. If anyone is just allowed license to live however they want, and the community doesn't feel the responsibility to do something about it, then we have forgotten a big piece of the gospel itself, and we're failing to be a Christian church in everything that that means. But this is important. Number three is that this is not easy. Holding those two things in tension is very, very difficult. In modern Western Christianity, we've often become so squeamish about conflict and about confrontation that we don't address destructive behavior in the church. We exhibit very little moral distinctiveness from the world outside, that our lives, our spending, the way that we relate to one another is almost a mirror image. So the world is right to look upon us and say, what's the big deal? What's going on? Why would I care? because you live just like I do. Or the church majors on a certain list of sins that generally are the ones that we don't practice, and we do address the ones that we don't. Or maybe you've been in a church like this. I hope this isn't in town's uh, description, but you've been to a church maybe where behavior is everything, and there's a moralism that sets in, and it's a dark place. It's hard to be alive in that place. It's hard to understand who Jesus is. There's very little forgiveness, very little gospel comfort in a church like that. One commentator says, behind every issue of behavior and discipline within the church, there stands the larger issue 
of what the living God is doing in this community, and in particular, through this community in the world. If the community is simply concerned to have a placid life and tones down the clear and definite notes of gospel belief and behavior for the sake of that, its effectiveness, its witness and mission to the world will be greatly reduced, and Satan will be delighted. Equally, if a community becomes so keen on discipline and order that it deals harshly with offenders and allows them no chance to repent, to make amends, and to be welcomed back as full members, then Satan will be just as pleased with that as well. You see, it's always e- it's easy to fall off the horse on either side. Paul sees here a pastoral tension, but he doesn't see a contradiction. These two things can and should live simultaneously in the life of the church. Between directly addressing bad behavior, scandalous behavior, and offering forgiveness and comfort, deciding in favor of love. Now, you'll notice here, this is not the privilege, it doesn't give us the privilege to go around and begin pointing out every little issue that we see in other people's lives. Who would want to be a part of that church? What Paul is talking about here repeatedly is these scandalous sins that are a boil on the church that it's very obvious that Satan looks on and says, I'm pleased, and the world looks on and says, you know, why would I want to be a part of that? These are big things that the church needs to address. It doesn't mean that we go around and pick on each other in every little detail that we see that is inconsistent. Forgiveness to Paul is so important, and he practices it so completely that He has a hard time in verse 10 remembering who he's forgiven. I've never seen this before until I studied it this week, but listen to verse 10. Anyone you forgive, I also forgive. And what and what I have forgiven, hyphen, if there is anything to forgive, hyphen, I have forgiven in the sight of Christ for your sake. What is he saying? Well, inside those dashes, inside the hyphens, he's racking his brain to try and figure out and try to remember the circumstances of someone that he has forgiven, to see if he's forgiven anyone anything. And what have I forgiven if there was anything? Paul is not here having a senior moment. He's not being absent-minded. He's not saying, of course, that no one has offended him, nor that he's that there's no time that he personally has forgiven someone, but that he's having a difficult time remembering the circumstances. Have you ever tried to intentionally remember something? You always forget it, right? There are some words that I have looked up in the dictionary 10, 15 times, and every time I read it again, I'm like, okay, what is that word? And I cannot remember theological concepts. I'll go on Wikipedia. That's where I go to get my theology and try to figure out what, what does this mean? I can't remember. What is that word? The harder I try to remember something intentionally, the, the quicker, more quickly it slips through my mind and out of my grasp. And the same thing is true the other way for trying to forget something. If we intentionally try to forget something, we can't help but bring it into our minds, right? And especially if it's something that 
someone has done to harm us or hurt us or wrong us. It is so difficult to intentionally forget that. And even if we go for a period of time, you know, a few months later, it'll just bounce into our minds and we'll get triggered by something and we'll get angry again. It's really difficult to forget. And trying to forget it just means that we sort of obsess about it. Well, Paul is telling us that he's having a very difficult time remembering the circumstances where he forgave someone. And what this is for Paul is a rigorous spiritual discipline that when Paul forgives something, someone, he chooses to intentionally forget it, that that is his practice, that he moves on and he allows that person to move on. In a community that we get to belong to, like this one, because Jesus has intentionally wiped away and cleansed and have forgotten our sins. He says that they are as far away from us as the East is from the West. If we get to belong to a community because of that, then shouldn't that be our spiritual discipline as well, that we intentionally forgive and then we work on forgetting? It doesn't necessarily get erased from the tapes, the memory tapes, but you begin to allow that person to move on, and you begin to move on as if it never happened. You may remember it, but the forgiveness, if you contemplate it deeply enough in the gospel, it begins to lose its power over you and over that relationship. What would it be like to be a church like that, where people aren't cut off and cut down because of their failures? where people who are struggling don't feel the need to hide, but they actually believe that engaging with their family, the church, is the best place that they could be in order to deal with that, where someone isn't forever labeled by a particular sin that they have committed or continue to commit, but they're allowed to move on. I'd love for you guys to talk about that in your groups this week as you sit down and meet with your community groups, talk about what that would look like for that particular group. What would it look like for in town to practice that kind of thing? How can we intentionally practice this? And I want to say this too. As I said, it's not easy. But what Paul is calling us to is not to minimize someone's sin either. In fact, there's a person in Corinth that has been causing everyone grief, and he's caused Paul grief. He's hurt Paul, he's hurt the community, and Paul acknowledges that there's been some kind of conflict resolution, there's been some kind of confrontation. It's important enough to deal with, so this is not to minimize someone's sin, that we just immediately just say, I'm going to forget that ever happened. No, love compels us to address it, to move toward that person, and to offer forgiveness intentionally, not to minimize the offense or minimize the sin. But upon that person's repentance, it's now time to move on. Verse 7, now instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. And Richard helped us contemplate a few weeks ago that comfort is one of the primary aims of the gospel, that bringing comfort into your life is one of God's primary aims. And he does that through how? Through us, through each other. It's not just this ephemeral, theoretical thing. God comforts you through your brothers and sisters. The Christian aroma 
the aroma, the fragrance that a community is supposed to give off, that you are supposed to give off, off is this intentional practice of human forgiveness and of restoration, working comfort into people's hurting places. Now, business coaches often ask clients to come up with three or four words that define their business to help them try to figure out who are you and why do you exist. And I do this occasionally for in town. What are the words that really define us? It, if not now, at least aspirationally, this is who we want to become. And one of those is centered, that we are centered upon Jesus and not the periphery, not everything that everyone wants church to be like and has experienced before, but we are centered deliberately on Jesus. Also, that we are connected, that we are in relationship enough with one another that we can address sin patterns, that we can offer comfort. And then thirdly is safe. Safe, meaning that there is space to wrestle with faith. There is freedom to be an in-process human being. It's okay to not have it all together theologically, behaviorally. And so we need to ask, if that's one of our words, how do we give space to people to fail and hold them accountable? And it starts, I think, when a community says, I love you enough not to let you live any way that you want. But at the same time, I'm not going to let you continue to harm yourself and harm others, but I also love you enough to be intentionally patient with you as God works on you. This is the aroma of grace. This is the the fragrance of, of gospel patience, where we give space for people to fail and to address their shortcomings. And the community is safe enough to where someone feels safe to share those things. So you can come in from any place, but you can't stay there that we're going to intentionally push you towards Jesus and towards ways and patterns of health in your life as well as in your relationships. That's the smell. That's the fragrance of gospel-centered community. Now, let me end this way because the sense of smell, as we mentioned, was very important in the ancient world because people stunk. They didn't take baths for the most part. They didn't have deodorant. Uh, soap was something that most people didn't have. They walked around in feces, so their feet stunk. It was very important uh, to have something that would counteract those smells. So perfume was something that was incredibly valuable and something that people tried to use to cover how badly they smelled. But incense was another thing that kind of masked the smell of a home or the smell of a person. And The smell of sacrifice, both pagan and Christian, was very common where an animal was burnt to please the gods. The smell would waft into the gods, or in the case of the Hebrew people, into God's, Yahweh's nostrils to please Him. Smell was very important and something you were very aware of in the ancient world. But um, in one of the final verses, Paul grabs onto another very specific kind of aroma. And he says in verse 14, But thanks be to God, who always leads us as captives in Christ's triumphal procession and uses us to spread the aroma of the knowledge of Him 
everywhere. When an army would return home victorious in Roman times, they would march the spoils of war through the through the streets. So the king or the general or whoever had won that battle against that oppositional city would come and the people would line the streets and they would have fanfare to recognize that our king, our general is victorious. And they would march the spoils of war through gold and uh, anything that they had captured, weapons, and they would burn incense. Why would they do that? It was to mark that occasion because smell was so important When they would smell incense later, they would remember and they would connect that victorious march. Now, the spoils of war were, as I said, gold and weapons and shields and chariots or whatever it would be, but also people. They would march people through through the streets in this procession, the people that had been conquered. And this is where it gets very difficult here in this passage because where were those people headed? They were headed to slavery or some kind of ceremonial execution. It's not a very pleasing picture, at least to some. The aroma, you see, that incense that was always burned in this procession would mean something very different to the people on the streets and the conquering army than it would mean to the slaves and the captives. It was the scent of death for them. Those still alive in the conquered army were brought home as captives. And so when they smelled that, they knew time was running short. Now, in verse 15, he says, connecting to that idea that everyone reading this letter would have understood, for we are to God the pleasing aroma of Christ among those who are being saved and those who are perishing. To the one, we are an aroma that brings death. To the other, an aroma that brings life. The idea that Paul is communicating here is that as Jesus is, as King Jesus, his procession marches through the world, as his victory is pronounced and it takes shape throughout history, people in that procession, that is you and me, If we are in Christ, we are part of that procession, and our goal, in fact, we almost can't help it, that our aroma is wafting the smell of Jesus' victory. To those that smell that, that smell is very sweet. It turns because it, it means joy, it means hope, it means peace. It means that we have a victory that is not our own, but was granted to us because of Jesus' victory. And so that aroma is very sweet. But there's a counterpoint to that because others find that smell of the gospel noxious. Others find the smell of Jesus to be not that appealing, and they turn away, and they oppose God, and they move away. And what what Paul is saying here is that the people that smell Jesus and they find his aroma satisfying and joyful, then they are leading to life, and they are growing deeper and deeper into health and life eternal. And to those that reject it and find Jesus to be noxious, they are actually becoming more and more dead. They are moving away from the source of life. And so the aroma of Jesus can be attractive and it can be off-putting, and we know that. We live in Portland. This is no big secret. 
Now, Paul, to conclude, we talked about this idea of sacrifice, giving off a pleasing aroma that's throughout the Old Testament. If you want to read about Exodus and Ezekiel, are full with this idea where worshipers offered sacrifices to God and where animals symbolically carried and atoned for, expiated the sin of the person that brought the sacrifice, that the sin, their personal sin, was symbolically placed upon that animal, and then the animal was sacrificed. And this was very common, and it was actually very uh, elaborately instituted in the Old Testament. Well, Paul picks up on this in Ephesians 5, and here's what he says. Follow God's example, therefore, as dearly loved children, and walk in the way of love, just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Jesus, you see, is what all of those elaborate Old Testament sacrificial systems were to direct, directed at and what they pointed to, that he was the fulfillment, that he is the final and ultimate sacrifice and that you are caught up, if you're a Christian, in His eternal triumphal procession, not by your own goodness or your own devotion or your own dedication, but by His grace and mercy. That it is not you that has to go onto the altar and be killed, but it is Him. He is the sacrifice. He is the fragrant aroma. And so when you think about yourself and you're wondering, am I fit for God because look at my terrible life, you are because Jesus gives his aroma in your, place, in your place. Jesus is the sacrifice that you should have been. And he invites you, you see, not just into this sphere of his influence, but into him and into his sacrifice. You are incorporated into his victory. And his victory now becomes yours. That even as your body may be marching closer to death. Your soul is marching to life, everlasting life. Let's pray. Dear Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice on our behalf. We thank you for your unlimited forgiveness. And we pray that we would be a place, a church that sacrifices for others and that we would do so in practice by sacrificing our right to be right our right to go on being hurt, our right to remember and to continue to hold offenses over other people. We pray that we would be people who intentionally forgive and work towards forgetting, but not to diminish the actual sin. Help us to deal with that too in our own lives and with great love and great patience and great care in the lives of others. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So now let's move